talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. It's Hamilton today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Happy St. Paddy's Day. When Irish eyes are smiling, you can see them over a mask. Here, Scott Thompson. There you go. Let me see them smiling Irish eyes, or any for that matter. What a great tune. And, uh, you know, we often let uh, everybody in the show chip in, say, hey, what do you want to hear? What do you want to do? Oh, I'm sorry, by the way. It is uh, Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. The man who picked the tune today, Will Weber, he's on the board. A personal thing for him. Explain the song, and it's got a very cool Irish vibe to it. Yeah, my good friend uh, Nick Mailer uh, just was creating a whole bunch of songs and around uh, St. Patrick's Day 2019 he he just sent this to me in a Facebook message and said what do you think and I said I wow. I love it <laughs> That's incredible and unfortunately we lost Nick Yes unfortunately we lost him in September of 2020 What a what a guy he was a class clown he always wanted to make you laugh he had a, a just a monumental wit you know he's so quick on the trigger with some kind of a pun or social commentary you know and obviously a pretty talented guy creatively oh goodness me yeah he's all over the place played he played the bass he played guitar he learned to play piano all by himself as a kid he sang you know he's all over the place lovely lovely guy and remembering him uh, as he supplies the music for our top hour tune, the St. Paddy's Day. Uh, cheers to Nick. There you go. All right. Here's to uh, a long life, Nick. That's it. That's it. Well, uh, you know, cheers to you on the St. Paddy's Day. And uh, cheers to him as well. And uh, everybody else uh, who has lost somebody. And is celebrating again at a time when we can which is uh, pretty exciting, pretty interesting, a lot of fun, despite, despite what's going on in the world, uh, coming up with this, uh, these little bits of joy is what gets us through, and uh, will so on this St. Paddy's Day. Interesting watching clips of them, you know, dump the uh, green dye in the river in New York and such, and, and uh, you know, obviously haven't done that in a couple of years. So something, again, we can be thankful for. Uh, when sometimes things look really gloom is just how far we have come and uh, and the battle that we've had both with this pandemic and obviously uh, what is going on in the world. It's, um, it, it's, it's time to celebrate something and what a great day to do it on and a beautiful day to do it uh, as, uh, as well. All right, obviously Canada lifting the COVID-19 travel bans. The announcement was made today. That happens April 1st. No pre-arrival negative tests uh, are required. No quarantine while you're waiting for those tests. So the travel industry, obviously, uh, very jubilant about this. And uh, as we've been talking in past shows, uh, if you've got the itch to travel, uh, you better book your stuff soon because uh, it's going very quick and it's going to take a while to get this industry started back up again. Uh, St. Patty uh, Patty's Day celebrations going on. We'll touch on that as well. Also, uh, the Premier and uh, the uh, Prime Minister have announced that a child care uh, deal is coming soon. We're waiting for that. Also, uh, Minister Melanie Jolie uh, turning a lot of heads when she said that Canada is not a military power. We're good at convening. 
Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of veterans that are upset with that. Remember what, during the two Michaels issues, she, she said they hadn't talked or weren't going to talk due to bail conditions, whatever that was. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Zelensky, uh, Ukraine President Zelensky speaks to the German uh, parliament today, very similar to what we've seen in the United States, the UK, uh, and of course in Canada. And Putin, I mean, this says something here, and we've talked about the communication that's getting into Russia despite uh, Putin's attempts to control the message. Uh, he started denigrating those on Russian T, or, uh, started denigrating people on Russian TV who don't support him, uh, in Russia and, um, are, are deserting in some form. So, uh, when we get to that stage, uh, you know, um, well, who knows what's going to happen. Uh, that being said, in Canada, uh, over 3,300 Ukrainians have arrived in Canada just over, uh, the now 22 days of this conflict. So, uh, that, and of course, the numbers uh, for Ukraine, there are well over 3 million people that uh, refugees on the run. And we've seen those horrific pictures of, uh, of all of the, the tragedy and the displacement that's going on uh, in these people who only 22, 3, 4, 5 days ago uh, were living certainly a much different life. Uh, than we are, uh, they are now. We'll talk about that obviously coming up. Other stuff going on. NASA, look at the size of this rocket. I know what people were saying about Elon Musk's and, and, uh, and, uh, Bezos and all that. Look at, wait till you see this puppy. It's a mega moon rocket. We're going to talk about that with uh, our favorite space cowboy, Paul Delaney, coming up a little later on. Going to bring in John Kellerusso a little later on from Mac, and uh, he's an expert in Russia, uh, Russian history, and uh, and and will give us a little bit of. Uh, perhaps uh, some depth and some context to what's going on and the relationship between these two countries. Obviously, with the pre-arrival COVID testing, uh, vaccination for travelers has uh, all the mayors along border cities very excited. The mayor of Niagara Falls, Jim Diodati, also one of them. We're going to talk to him coming up a little later on uh, in the show. Also, uh, vaccination rates, uh, what are we at? Uh, 85%, 5 plus, 12 plus, we're well over 90%. 41 percent of the population is boosted uh i'm guessing the other 41 percent have had it and are waiting to get their booster me included uh and that being said now moderna has announced or sorry uh health canada has announced that moderna is now available for kids 6 to 11 uh and good news there very much similar to pfizer so uh all stories we're watching and we're going to talk about throughout the course of the day you know, we're hearing lots about uh, rich people in space and billionaires sending up their rockets and such. Uh, but now NASA is giving us a peek at their mega moon rocket. What the heck is that? Well, that's why you ask Professor Paul Delaney, astronomy, York University. He's retired, but always with his finger on the pulse. He's with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am indeed, Scott. Nice to be with you. So we remember what, uh, you know, people talking about phallic symbols and such, talking about the, the billionaire rockets and such, but this one's massive, 29 stories. Tell us about this thing. This harks back to the Saturn V. This, this rocket has been 50 years in the making as far as I'm concerned. We haven't had a vehicle like this from NASA since the glory days of the Apollo program. And that's exactly what it's designed to do, to replicate the Saturn V and then some and take humanity back to the moon this time to stay. And it all starts this evening. 
So you talked about, uh, you know, going back to the Saturn-type rocket. Obviously, we've seen space shuttles, Apollo missions, what have you. Does this take all of those technologies, put it into one? Why do we have the design we have? It, it, it really does come down to the best of everything that we have done, or at least the best everything the best of everything that NASA has done. So this is a two-stage vehicle in contrast to a three-stage, which was the Saturn V. It's got a couple of strap-on solid rocket boosters, a la the Space Shuttle. It's got a huge external fuel tank. That's the first stage, but it's underneath the crew cabin, the Orion spacecraft. So we don't have any foam shedding and impacting the crew quarters and so on. We're using the engines of the Space Shuttle, the RD-25s. So as you say, it really is NASA pooling experience over 50 years and building this vehicle which is more powerful than the saturn V, but it's yet to launch so we can't say it is more powerful but on the drawing board it's more powerful than the saturn V. it's a it's a thing to behold <laughs> and what is it what's what's the objective what's its purpose why is it so, the way it is well it's designed to be able to take us literally out into the solar system. The space shuttle was woefully underpowered. It, it was really good at getting things to low Earth orbit. It couldn't do anything more than that. And that, if you will, to me, was a bit of the disappointment of the space shuttle era. It's a great vehicle, great truck, but it could only go sort of in the local neighborhood. This is a vehicle, the, the mega rocket, the SLS, the Space Launch System, is designed to be able to take a serious amount of payload, a lot of mass, into lunar orbit enough to be able to do more than just take people but to be able to put and establish the the devices on the ground the colonization if you will the settlements on the moon so that's what it was designed to do to carry significant payload and we're going to see that not this time around because the the artemis one mission which is what we're prepping for for may or june of this year is a dress rehearsal to make sure that the sls does exactly what we're supposed to what it is supposed to do and to be able to uh, test out the orion spacecraft which is going to be in lunar orbit for three weeks uncrewed do all of that successfully, and then Artemis II in 2024 will take four people back to lunar orbit, including a Canadian. So this is a dry run unmanned, and we're getting the first peek at this now. Is that the significance of why we're chatting today? Yeah, that's, that really is it. I mean, if you've been following uh, the NASA website, they've been showing lots of images of the SLS as they've been assembling it in the vertical assembly building, Cape Kennedy, Cape Canaveral, sorry. Uh, but this is the rollout today, uh, starting at, I think, 6 o'clock or thereabouts. It's going to take about 12 hours, because this is a big rocket, to get to the launch pad. And then about oh, two weeks from now, roughly speaking, they're going to fuel it all up and then run a complete dress rehearsal down to like T minus 10 seconds and then stop. And then if all of that behaves itself properly, then they're going to do it all again and do another abort. So basically they're wanting to make sure that this vehicle with a full load of propellant on board does exactly, performs exactly the way we're expecting it to. So on, it's obviously rolling out now and the first, the, the first, uh, the first uh, test is a, just a fire up or is it actually leaving the launch pad? No, no, it's not leaving the launch pad. And in fact, we won't even fire up the engines. Uh, We'll get to that moment just prior (laughs) to to, uh, lighting the candle. Okay, that's a a great analogy. So when when they light the candle, it will go up unmanned first. Is that accurate? That is correct. So in May or June, if, if everything goes really well over the next couple of weeks, we may see the launch window in May 
with Artemis 1. Most people are expecting there'll be a couple of little tweaks that'll be needed, and NASA in generally takes more time to evaluate data than they originally say because they, they want to be careful. I mean, this is a big deal. So I'm betting that we'll see the June launch window for Artemis 1. It will take the Orion spacecraft to lunar orbit where it will stay literally for the entire month of June, and then it'll come back for a full splashdown in July. That will be as if it was crewed, but this is completely uncrewed. So when, uh, if that goes uh, to plan, then the next one is crewed. Is that accurate? That is correct. 2024 is the current timeline. Don't put a whole lot of money on that. Uh, but yeah, 2024-ish, maybe 2025, hopefully 2024, four crew members. So that's a departure from Apollo. Uh, three NASA astronauts and a Canadian. They'll orbit the moon. First time people have been back to the moon since the glory days of Apollo back in the 70s. And then if all that goes well, probably a year later is Artemis 3, and that's a landing on the moon. So that replicates, wow. if you will, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin in July of 1969. Long time right. waiting, Scott. <laughs> yeah, I, I, last question, because I know you got to run. So what was your first impression? Have you seen this thing in person yet, or is it still under the, still under the blanket, just the images you've seen? Oh, I've I've been watching the uh, the vehicle take shape uh, for well, well, literally the last year, so as to speak. Uh, but it'll be nice to see it out of the cradle, shall we say, out of the vertical assembly building, standing tall on its own at sunset. I mean, that's a little bit of poetry right there, right? <laughs> Big that is perfect. <laughs> yeah, very very exciting. It'll be interesting to see how the public uh, plays with this, and especially in what we're seeing with the, the private industry and SpaceX and such. Uh, very exciting time. Paul Delaney with us, astronomer. York University, a very exciting time as we venture back to the moon. Thank you, Paul. Be well. Take care, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. As we talk about the relationship between Russia and Ukraine, uh, many have asked the question, um, what is the relationship like between these two countries? Are Russians and Ukrainians enemies? Let's bring in John Calaruso, PhD professor, anthropology, linguistics, and languages speci uh, specializing in Russia, and is with us now. John, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well, Scott. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. I know this is a very complicated uh, relationship and, and probably can't be explained here in five or seven minutes or so. But what is the relationship like between Russians and Ukrainians? Are they enemies? <laughs> no, they're not. They're not enemies. Um, the Ukraine, actually, the word means edge or, and probably better frontier um, was a zone that really uh, was where Russian civilization began, uh, and Kiev was the seat of that. And uh, then the Mongols came along with Genghis Khan and pretty much uh, slaughtered everybody, so they retreated northward. And that's when you started getting places like Novgorod and, and Moscow and whatnot emerging. Um, but Ukraine uh, was repopulated. And the thing to keep in mind is that Ukraine was a zone of freedom. The rest of Russia, they had served them, uh, basically a kind of slavery. And if you wanted to get away from that and escape, you went south and you went to Ukraine. And uh, that was a zone of free life. Uh, and the Cossacks were the ones that emerged there. And they, of course, were uh, excellent fighters. So in effect, what you're seeing today is the heritage uh, that goes back about 500 years, 600 years. Uh, of this love of freedom and, and this ferocity on the battlefield. 
And we hear of split families where it might be uh, one spouse is Ukrainian, the other is Russian, uh, and and these people ha- have lived together or uh, coexisted together for for years. How how is what's the reaction there? Even in places like uh, Moscow, where you know obviously state run media is controlling the message, but we hear certainly the other side of the story is getting in. What is happening with these regions? Well, what strikes me is is so odd is that uh, people of Russia proper, let's say, the ones uh, who uh, speak Russian as opposed to Ukrainian, which is slightly different. Um, they uh, continue, as does Ukraine, they continue the heritage of the Soviet Union. And they were fed propaganda constantly during that period. And one would assume they'd be a bit skeptical of this kind of stuff. Um, but apparently, uh, there's a good portion of the population that buys into it so far. Uh, they're not asking questions like, what happened to the economy yet? You know, that kind of mm. thing. And um so there's there's really uh, a bit of puzzlement on that one. Uh, the inter, intermarriages and whatnot, this is uh, quite natural in some way, and um, they get along until now. Yeah. Um, this is a great tragedy of what's going on. Considering Ukraine, uh, you know, uh, freedom, democracy uh, in its best form as it can be, why is, Ukra- why is Ukraine not in NATO? Why were they not a part of NATO? Well, I think uh, NATO considered them a buffer state. Uh, yeah. When two hostile zones sort of begin to encroach on each other, uh, it's very useful to have an inter- interspersed area, a buffer between two and uh uh, so I think, uh, no one said this, but I think quite clearly Belarus and, and Ukraine were considered buffers. Uh, similarly, with the Caucasus and places like the Middle East and Iran, uh, these, this was a, a, something of a buffer for Russia dealing with people further to the south. And I think that uh, what Putin has done, which is an astonishing blunder, uh, is if he succeeds and basically seizes Ukraine, and of course, Belarus will roll, roll, roll over and uh, line, align with them too under Lukashenko, um, is he's eliminated the buffers. That's mm. the last thing you want to do. This is, this is like, you know, Warfare 101, first week. Uh, so uh, his behavior is, is really astonishing in some ways. Obviously, Putin's sensitive to the fact that uh, the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO. Zelensky, Ukraine President Zelensky, has said no to NATO, that... that, that uh, uh, obviously, that's something that can be put on the table uh, for talks and such. Is that significant? What is how how significant is it? Well, if he says that he's going to renounce his quest to to join NATO, which is built into the Ukrainian constitution, by the way, uh, if he renounces that, that is probably a significant concession uh, that would uh, probably lead to some kind of a settlement. One hopes. Um, the point, I think, is this, is that uh, when this is over, no one's going to trust uh, Russia again. And I think uh, buffer zone or not, it's going to be armed to the teeth. And that's going to be the case whether uh, it's part of NATO or not. And it doesn't really have to be part of NATO to end up being armed to the teeth. All it has to do is have someone in Washington that is not Donald Trump. Thank goodness. <clears throat> Um, here we are, day 22 of this. Uh, where do you see this going? What does your gut tell you? 
<laughs> my gut tells me it's going to go on for a while. Uh, this uh, overestimation of power and might is a typical Russian defect. Uh, Putin apparently literally was told and believed that he would be able to march down the, the, the grand uh, roadway of, of Kiev uh, after three or four days of, of fighting and that the Ukrainians would capitulate. Um, so I'm reminded of the uh, first Chechen war uh, and the Russians assumed that they would actually conquer Chechnya in two weeks. So they launched it on, I think, December 10th, hoping to finish it on the Roman Catholic uh, Christmas Eve. Um, so this is a pattern I've seen before. And uh, one would think that somehow they would learn from this. But um, there seem to be other imperatives that overwhelm things. Uh, Putin wants to put together another a Russian empire. He wants to re reassemble it. I can't think of a single empire any time in the history of the world that has, once it's begun to unravel, has been stitched back together again. Hmm. It seems to be an impossibility. Will Russians rebel against Putin? Will there be uh, upheaval there at home domestically? I think so. I think that's a real possibility. I think that's why he's trying to clamp down so hard. Um, you know, he's he's cost uh, his oligarchs now, he's cost those boys a lot of money over, now, over a period of a fair, fair bit of time. And now their position is very precarious. Uh, I don't think that he's really uh, in a position to um, continue bossing people around the way he has. So this is sort of do or die for him. And um, I think that I also think there are problems. In other words, the dating of the war is peculiar. Uh, why didn't he do it if he's been obsessed with, with Ukraine for years? Why didn't he do it when Trump was still in office? Why is he, doesn't he wait a year and wait until COVID is really over? Now that soldiers are going to contend with COVID as well as bombs and bullets. So uh, it's, it, it's, it's a situation that where, to me, it looks like Putin's on a very thin uh, lake of ice, very thin. John Colarusa with us, Ph.D. Professor of Anthropology, Linguistics and Languages, specializing in Russia. Fascinating discussion, John. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You too. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. As we were mentioning yesterday, it was announced and made official today that the uh, pre-arrival COVID-19 testing uh, will end on the borders as of April 1st. Uh, I can imagine uh, collectively you could hear uh, the cheering uh, from mayors along the border who have been waiting for this for a long time, including the mayor of Niagara Falls, Jim Diodati. He's with us now. Jim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. And for today, I think we'll call myself Jim O'Diodati. O'Diodati, that's great. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. This isn't that's your first... They- this That's isn't your what they say oh dear daddy <laughs> there you go there you go it's not your first rodeo jim uh no. so obviously well it must be an absolutely beautiful day in niagara falls today oh my gosh it is it's in the low 20s um everybody is so excited the crowds have been fantastic for spring break this week and also for family day week and weekend and for valentine so we've had a few real nice crowds people are excited uh, luckily, the Ford government created the staycation tax credit where mm. a family can get up to $2,000 uh, on their income tax for next year by staying in hotels around Ontario. So a lot of people taking advantage. And I have to tell you, it is amazing. I was down at the falls yesterday to see people, families, smiling faces, laughing, and really happy and enjoying themselves. 
And, you know, obviously the announcement today uh, that uh, as of April 1st, the pre-arrival COVID-19 uh, testing protocol is uh, pretty much relaxed. Uh, there will be occasional uh, random testing, of course. Uh, so how much of a difference would that one change make for a city like Niagara Falls? Well, it could be huge. And, and you know, the difficult part is for two years, we've broken people's patterns and we're yeah. hoping they'll reestablish those patterns. But up until now, there's been such a labyrinth of rules and regulations and confusion and frustration that the traveling public are like water. They take the path of least resistance. And there was a lot of resistance at our borders. And here in Niagara Falls, we're the number one leisure destination in the country. Up to 14 million people come here every year. And typically, 50% of our revenues come from the U.S. So after two devastating tourism seasons, we got a chance this year of snapping back and having a really, really good season. Of course, everybody's tentative. We're all nervous, always waiting for that shoe to drop. But right now, people are really excited. And for the first time in a while, they've got some hope. Yeah, and you know, it's funny, you were talking about, Jim, waiting for that next shoe to drop, because we've seen that, you know, with the other waves, and, and you know, I, it's certainly possible, but with the high vaccination rates, it seems that, that we are getting to the endemic stage of uh, of all of this. Uh, that being said, when do you expect to see a reaction? I mean, uh, the point I guess I was trying to make was, at the beginning, people were kind of tentative, uh, and they said, I remember at the beginning, you know, when, it, when the first wave ended, oh, it's going to be like the Roaring Twenties, but it wasn't, it, people were more hesitant, but I do feel a bit more confidence now with the vaccination rates that that this time people will come out. Do you get that feeling? I do. I do. And, you know, when you've got upwards of nine out of 10 Canadians that are vaccinated who are eligible and people understand what's going on, we know about the protocols in a lot of destinations like Niagara Falls. We went above and beyond and we created safe to play.ca and safe to stay.ca. We brought an epidemiologist to help us so that we've got a better system in place and, and you're right, we've been through this how many times now? And I think we've all learned we're a little battle-worn and we're ready for whatever comes. And I think also there's a collective understanding that we're never it's never going to completely go away. It's something we have to learn to live with as safe a way as we can. And it's time to open up the borders. As certainly, we've always said follow the science and the, the infectious disease uh, experts are telling us that the available science has evolved and travel is no more risky than other activities. And we're glad that it won't be singled out any longer. Do you expect to see an immediate reaction like April 1st weekend? Bang. Well, yeah, there's going to be some, I promise you, that are just itching to go to their favorite buffalo chicken wing and pizza joint. Yeah. Uh, people that, you know, that want to go to Wegmans or Tops or Target or those kind of places that they love to go to. For an example, my mom and dad, we live on the border and we've got family on both sides, family yeah. we haven't seen in a couple of years. Uh, people have missed funerals. They've missed weddings. My mom and dad typically on Thursdays were their day. They go over the river. They do some, we call it going over the river, do some shopping, go out for dinner, come back. And it's just a way of breaking up the week. And I know they're looking forward to going to some of their old lunch favorite spots. And, and the other thing, there's a million snowbirds that are in the U.S. that are waiting to come back. And I can yeah. tell you, there's a lot of consternation right now about coming back. And they'll be grateful they don't have to go through all the rigmarole of testing. Will the falls be lit up green tonight? Yes. Yes, it is. The falls will be green tonight. And uh, I think the beer will be flowing green. There'll be a lot of people <laughs> having fun. And, you know, people are in a more jubilant uh, mood right now for lots of reasons. Like the snow's melting. The weather is incredible here. Uh, there's good deals out there. There's incentives for paying for your accommodations 
And people, there's a lot of pent-up demand to have fun. And, and I can tell you a couple of weeks ago, we had Blue Rodeo headliner New Year's Eve show. Uh, of course, it's a March New Year's Eve show. It was yeah. delayed by a few months. We did the countdown and you could feel the collective sigh as you sat there with your beverage, listen to some great music thinking, oh man, have I missed this? So yeah, absolutely. People are in a ce- celebratory mood right now. And it's all happening in Niagara Falls. Mayor Jim Odiodati on the St. Patty's Day. Mayor of Niagara Falls getting ready for April 1st when uh, the protocol is relaxed. Uh, testing protocol is relaxed. Jim, thanks so much for the time. Good luck in the falls and have a great day. Hey, Scott, thanks for having me on the show. All right. Uh, as they say, another tool in the toolbox. And as we said, how many times have you heard that over this global pandemic? Uh, that and pivot. I'm going to pivot and I'm going to grab another tool out of my toolbox to fight COVID-19. Uh, Moderna joins Pfizer. Uh, and uh, in Canada, Health Canada has authorized the use of Moderna uh, vaccine for kids between the age of 6 and 11 years of age. It's branded Spike Vax and was recently cleared for use among kids in the same age group in Australia and the European Union. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Omar Khan is with us, assistant professor with the Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Department of Immunology with the University of Toronto and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, obviously, today, the announcement of uh, that as of April 1st, uh, end of pre-arrival testing for travelers coming in. What are your thoughts on where we are and the slow rela- uh, relaxation of these protocols? One of the things that we always look for is, are we still in the cycle? So as we see restrictions start to change and evolve, we always have to keep an eye out of what's happening in the rest of the world. And when we look to parts of Europe, we see case numbers going up. And, you know, if we see that hospitalizations are okay, then it might be okay over here too. So it's cautiously optimistic as usual, but, you know, we, we've often found that looking over to Europe is, you know, a, a predictor of what may happen here. We know, obviously, the Omicron virus and its latest version of it spreads faster, not as severe. Are you expecting the same thing as sort of when Omicron arrived that, um, you know, if we do see the rising caseloads, we're, we're not going to see that translate into hospital? I, I know you're guessing at this point, but what are your thoughts? Well, I think that's fair. I mean, we understand how Omicron affects people more now than we did before. So that's that's good. The thing that we are concerned about is just overall case numbers, because every viral replication event is an opportunity for a new mutation. And we just don't want anything new to come out of this. We want to slow down that viral evolution as much as possible by having people well protected. Uh, now, obviously, we've got Moderna as well as Pfizer as uh, as these new types of vaccine for kids, but we still see a high hesitancy rate among kids. Obviously, with adults, we're seeing numbers up, you know, high 80s, 90 percent. Uh, with kids, it's more around 50 percent. How do you explain that? That's a good question. I'm not quite sure. I mean, there's always this feeling of reluctance, especially when people want to protect their kids. But you know, vaccines are a very, very old tool that we've used in healthcare for, you know, decades and decades. So we, we do know that they do help people out. And the opportunity to spare somebody the trauma of getting sick is always a great thing. So hopefully that will convince people. And people have choice now. There's Pfizer as well as Moderna. So if you talk to your doctor who should be you should be talking to to help make these decisions, 
If your child happens to be allergic to an ingredient for Pfizer, for example, then you have a great option in Moderna. So this should help people, you know, have more options and have their doctor give them more options. It seemed as, uh, you know, obviously we were uh, behind in getting vaccines into the country or giving them out initially through age group, and the, and the uptake was was pretty good. I mean, we got vaccinated pretty quick for the most part uh, and, and to the great numbers that we have today. Um, is it going to take a little bit more to get this age group done? Because it seemed we went like gangbusters till we got here. Yeah, it might take some more time because, again, Younger children can't necessarily go and get vaccinated. They have to rely on their parents to help take them. And, you know, that decision's, you know, not just made on the child, but it's also with the parents. So, you know, working on letting people know that this is safe is important. And remember, the only reason this could possibly be authorized for use in Canada and even other places in the world is that if it went through clinical trials and it was shown to be safe. And that's really important. First of all, clinical trials have to show safety and secondarily they show efficacy so these things are designed to look for safety first and foremost so doctor uh, obviously uh, we're at a fantastic place when it comes to say 12 plus uh, vaccination rates uh, and, and we've done a great job not so much with the young kids what would you say to parents who are maybe listening to this and a bit hesitant with that age group and when, when okay. you know, after they jumped in themselves, no problem, and maybe even the teenage kids, but this is different. What, what message do you have to them? I think the best conversation they can have is with their pediatrician. And if yeah. you don't have one, it's a great time to get one. You know, like these decisions should never be happening just with your family alone. We have doctors that are meant to help you with these types of decisions. They will, they know your child's history. And with that medical history, they can give you the best possible recommendation. I think that's what we need to look at and, and kind of promote here. We have a fantastic healthcare system. We have wonderful doctors. Let's make use of them. Dr. Omar Khan with us, Assistant Professor with the Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Department of Immunology, University of Toronto, Moderna, uh, in Canada, now available for kids between 6 and 11 years of age. Doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Be well. Thanks. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, we've certainly uh, heard as, uh, you know, obviously the Russian invasion of Ukraine on its 22nd day, in its 22nd day, lots of people have been throwing around the word war crimes and Vladimir Putin uh, certainly uh, falling under that. What does that mean? Uh, what does it take for Vladimir Putin to uh, to be declared uh, a war criminal? And if so, what does that all mean? To talk more about all of this, Dr. Lubomir Luchuk with us, professor with the Royal Military of College, uh, sorry, with the Royal Military College, and is with us now. Lubomir, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, thank you. So how does this happen? How would uh, Putin be declared a war criminal? And is the significance, uh, what is the significance of this? Well, I mean, it's a complicated process. It's a process that involves rules of law. It's a process that's international. And it's a process in which Mr. Putin would have the right to defend himself against the charges. Uh, the fact that President Biden has declared him to be a war criminal, the fact that uh, a few days ago in the House of Commons, he was described as a war criminal, um, I described him as a war criminal back in June of 2021, and other professors have, have done the same. So there seems to be a consensus that 
the kind of activities that Mr. Putin has unleashed, this aggressive war against Ukraine that was launched on the 24th of February, the war against peace, as it were, uh, the war crimes are being perpetrated even as you and I speak. Uh, think about the theaters, the schools, the churches that have been targeted and destroyed, the civilians that have been bombed, the maternity ward, for example, in Mariupol uh, that was attacked and you know killing uh, many innocents. All of this, the, the refugee flows that he's precipitated, the bombing of the corridors, the closing of the corridors, humanitarian corridors, uh, the siege warfare that he's imposed upon various cities, all of these things taken collectively uh, suggest, you know, uh, a campaign that's essentially aimed at what he said he wanted to do, which is wipe the map clear of Ukraine. And it's, that's genocide, uh, or it's a genocidal agenda anyway. So, you know, when you look at everything that's happened in the past three weeks, uh, this war of aggression, uh, the damages it he's done to educational institutes, cultural heritage, and all the rest of it, and of course, the thousands of lives lost, um, there's a case being built against him. And one day he could be brought before the International Court of Justice at The Hague and tried as a war criminal. But as I say, it's a legal process. It's not simple. Uh, it can take years. There has to be compelling evidence that he intentionally uh, wanted to do what's happening. You know, my guess is, is the evidence is pretty clear, but then again, I'm not a lawyer and, you know, everybody has a right to a defense, even a man as, as, as villainous as this character. What, so, would his, what would his reaction be to this? Does he care? He doesn't care. Um, look, he is at least a billionaire. And I just read today that he's potentially a trillionaire. <laughs> right? So um, his lifestyle will not be affected although he's obviously becoming increasingly paranoid. He, he just recently fired all 1,000, imagine this, 1,000 of his personal staff because he fears being poisoned. Uh, you've seen the photographs of him sitting at the long tables. I mean, yeah. that's, been, that's been explained in part as COVID, but it's also his fear of you know, an assassin. Um, the oligarchs who've enabled him, the secret policemen that are in his immediate you know, circle, uh, they all tolerate him because they've enriched themselves by sponging off the Russian nation, extracting its wealth to their personal gain. They don't want to risk that. And he's increasingly becoming erratic in his behavior. And that could mean that some of them will say, it's not worth going down this path because we'll go with them. I don't, don't forget that when the Nazis were defeated after the Second World War, for example, at Nuremberg, it wasn't just, well, Hitler escaped justice by killing himself. He did the right thing. Maybe Putin will do the same thing. God, God pray he does. But his Confederates were also brought to Nuremberg and tried and yeah. found guilty in some cases and executed. Um, so, you know, the Lavrov of this world, th these kinds of people could end up in the dock as well. So, I think what, you know, what we're seeing is a case being built. It's certainly been raised at the United Nations. It's been raised in The Hague. It's been raised, obviously, in the public domain. And so Putin is aware of it. And this may make him increasingly desperate. Um, I really, you know, in some ways, I believe Russia has already lost the war in the sense that from once being referred to as Great Russia, it will never be referred to that again. The split yeah. between Ukraine and Russia is permanent. And Russia has been pushed to the margins of the European region as a, as a marginal rogue state, a terrorist state, if you like, headed by Mr. Putin, the KGB man in the Kremlin. And, you know, the evidence, I think, is pretty compelling that he is a war criminal. But again, one has to say that this is decided by the courts. 
and, I, and I'm obviously biased, you know, so you can't, you can't sort of say to me, well, Lubomir, would you try him as a war criminal? Of course I would, but um, he has the right to defense. And he, he you said, as, as you, as you mentioned, uh, the Russian military, not what it used to be during the old days. Uh, we've seen this with 22 days and counting for the Russian mm-hmm. uh, invasion of Ukraine, which many thought would be over quite quickly. Uh, if Russia is struggling, if Russia is desperate, if Russia is having a hard time where they are now, does that increase the chance of him using nukes? I mean, is that the only thing he has left? Because it's pretty obvious they're not as strong as they as everybody well, thought they you're, were. You're right. They're far from being as strong as they thought were thought to be. I mean, uh, their military is inept. It's poorly led. Uh, even when the generals go to the front lines, four of them have been killed already. Thousands of their troops have been killed in battle. Um, their equipment is falling apart. I, I was talking to friends in Kiev today, and I, I questioned them because I thought it was fake news. But in fact, a woman in Kiev, or maybe it was Kherson, I forget where it was, but a woman in Ukraine, an older lady, a babushka, as we would call her, knocked down a drone with a jar of pickles. I mean, literally. <laughs> and then when they opened it, and when they opened it up, it had Soviet-era uh, equipment, electronics in it. So. You know, they, they've they been, just like in Ukraine in 2014, when the Russians eventually, it, it first invaded in 2018 in Crimea and eastern Ukraine, and the Ukrainian military was not ready for them because they'd been basically allowed to decay and decline for years, and there was all sorts of corruption and theft and so on, so the soldiers were you know, poorly armed, poorly led, and so on. So, too, the same thing's been happening for in the Russian Federation, but for a lot longer. So now they've sent all this, this mighty army into Ukraine, they're encountering a battle-hardened army that's been fighting for eight years, who knows the game, that has some Western military support, and they're getting slaughtered. Now, I don't think Mr. Putin would launch a nuclear weapon for the simple reason that I don't think his military chain of command or the oligarchs who enable him or even his KGB buddies are looking to die with him, right? I mean, mm. to do that, you need to have pretty firm control. And he's a brute. He's no doubt a murderous man. He's a killer, as President Biden's called him. But the people around him don't want to die and launch a a thermonuclear weapon. You're risking third world war. What if it, you know, the the radiation alone would spill over potentially into NATO states. So even if you tried to confine this to what they call a battlefield nuclear weapon, a small yield weapon on Ukrainian soil, forever Russia then is excluded. Now, the sad part, the the one thing that I should mention is that the polls seem to suggest that somewhere in the order of 70% of Russians support Mr. Putin. And if that's actually true, as opposed to, you know, a bogus statistic, then I'm afraid the Russians have excluded themselves from good company in in the civilized Mm. world going forward. This, This is the end of the Russian Federation. It's probably the end of Mr. Putin. It's certainly showing that the emperor has no clothes in terms of his military. And it's, wow, what has it shown the world about what Ukrainians are prepared to do to survive, to defend their country against these invaders? And some of the strongest fighting is in cities that, you know, two, three years ago, you would have asked me, well, isn't Eastern Ukraine Russian speaking? Aren't they kind of a regional identity closer to Russia than to yeah. Ukraine? Well, go ask the people in Kharkiv if they think they're Russians. They're fighting fiercely for their, for their, for their country, for their city, for their fellow Ukrainians. And the language they may speak among themselves is totally irrelevant to that. Dr. Lubomir Luchik with us, Royal Military College, talking about uh, Vladimir Putin and designation of a war criminal and what that all means. Doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
Thank you. My pleasure. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. In the newsroom, Donna Weeks and Dave Woodard uh, watching the world spin around for us. And, of course, it is as we watch uh, continually for the last 22 days the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Many thought it would be over relatively quickly. Uh, Many surprised that the Russian war machine certainly doesn't seem to be as uh, potent as it once was. Uh, And the big, long convoy that we saw, saw forming forever uh, you know, has eventually stalled and, and now uh, diminished. We're not sure. Uh, well, it's just street to street fighting. And we've all seen the images of, uh, of what that means and, and, and the millions that are fleeing, uh, the millions that are fleeing, uh, Ukraine, Poland alone. I think the population has increased like 4.8% just because of the refugees coming out of Ukraine and Poland, of course, doing an incredible job of, uh, of helping their neighbors. But as Russia bogs down, What's the chance of them asking China for help? To talk more about all of this, uh, Professor Walter Jordan with us, PhD, Department of Defense Studies, Royal Military College of Canada, and with us now. Walter, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, thank you. I'm glad to be joining you. So there's a couple of things uh, that are of concern here. Obviously, we're seeing or have seen, for various reasons, Putin's army bogged down, not as robust as everybody thought it was. As a result of that, will he get desperate and ask China for help? Many have suggested he already has, uh, or even use nukes. What kind of corner does this paint him into? I think he is desperate, and I think their widening bombing is, is indication of the desperation. Um, right now, the Russian troops are actually outnumbered, given that Ukraine is not allowing um, males between 18 and 60 years old to leave the country, and their territorial defense forces are, are increasing by the more than 200,000 personnel. So um, the, Russia is desperate. I, I don't think that Russia can go to China for actually personnel, but they have gone to Syria when they helped uh, the Syrian government to quell uh, a revolution. And they committed many atrocities in Syria, and now they're asking the Syrian government to provide forces. And they've uh, they've announced that uh, over 10,000 Syrian forces are coming to uh, to fight in Ukraine. Um, they'll deploy forces, more forces from within Russia for sure. Um, but the the big question that you raise about China um, is uh, how much is it willing to help? And I think China is feeling very uncomfortable about this. They've always been a big promoter of the sovereign sovereignty, even though sometimes they define sovereignty in much to their advantage. But they they do not like the um, the invasion of a sovereign country, and they even had an agreement uh, between with Ukraine for assistance. So um, I think that Russia will try and ask China for weapons, um, and it's possible that China will uh, sell Russia weapons or do an exchange for some uh, gas or other oil products that Russia can supply. But uh, China is going to be very reluctant. And the fact that the Russians are looking like they might lose this war would make any supporters even more reluctant. Will we know if this happens, if this, there is some sort of deal, or will this all be kept in extremely secret? No, you'll know because you'll see Chinese munitions right. being used in in the field we'll see the markings uh even if they try and hide it we'd be able to use forensics try and discover that and um and i have to say that 
the the Russia already has such a large manu- arms manufacturing capacity that that uh, going to China is not really a um, uh, going to be a significant factor. What is significant is Russia going to China to help out uh, to prevent their their economy from collapsing, where they would use China to uh, help bust the sanctions. So, if they have the arms capacity, why are they stalling? Why are they faltering? Well, it, it's one thing to pr- produce arms; it's, it's another thing to put them in the right spot to the right mm. people. And the uh, initial invasion, they did have the element of uh, surprise, even though the U.S. had forewarned uh, days, even a week beforehand, that it was going to happen. The Ukrainians were still caught uh, partially off guard, and so the Russians got an advantage. But Russia has been unable to take a single large city. Even Kharkiv, which is uh, uh, which is just 10 kilometers from the Russian border, uh, the the defenders have held it. And Mariupol, which is a key strategic city that would be a help form of land bridge between Crimea, which is Russian held, and the Russian mainland, that city is holding up under catastrophic conditions. The uh, the bombardment has been just uh, horrible and devastating to the local population, but they're still holding up. So um, all those weapons can't help you if you don't have um, good morale or you don't have good leadership or you don't have the um, correct doctrine and the concepts for the operation in the field. And it looks like on many of those factors, Russia is failing. Professor Walter Dorn with his PhD, Department of Defense Studies, Royal Military College of Canada, the possible uh, the possibility of Russia uh, asking China for help and where they all uh, are now and their uh, efforts to take Ukraine stalling. Walter, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we'll see what we can do to help Ukraine. Cheers for now. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've certainly uh, talked a lot about Russian sanctions with this invasion now into its, uh, what, 22nd day. And um, uh, uh, dictators and oligarchs, Russian oligarchs that are hiding their money in Canada. Uh, We've been talking about this for an awfully long time. As a matter of fact, uh, Sam Cooper, global reporter out west, has done extensive stories on uh, how companies use can or sorry how countries use Canada specifically uh, the Chinese Communist Party and how they've laundered money here and what have you uh, but with the invasion the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the sanction of these oligarchs it's sort of uh, for some reason now put a, a magnifying glass or a spotlight per se on this sort of activity but really it's been in the news a lot it's just we haven't paid attention to it and now a new report by canadians for tax fairness says that canada is actually being marketed to transnational tax dodgers and criminals as a great place to incorporate shell companies for tax avoidance schemes according to this report to talk more about all of this dt cochran is with us phd heretical economist researcher with a canadian uh, for or sorry with canadians for tax fairness and with us now dt thanks for the time i hope you're well i am thank you for having me so uh, as i mentioned before we've been talking about this for a long time with the chinese communist uh, party and such uh many have said russia very much uh in the same situation toronto's bridal path brought up in these uh, discussions as places where money is being stored uh, why are we caring now why are we pretending to care now why is this now uh, a focus well 
we've been calling attention to this issue for years and years. And thankfully, we've actually seen some movement from the government um, with the recent budget uh, promising funds towards studying and developing a beneficial ownership registry, which is exactly what we need to shed light on who the owners of these shell companies are. And then that will eliminate an important piece of what is making Canada attractive to those trying to avoid taxes, trying to hide the source of their income, trying to hide assets um, for all kinds of reasons, ranging from barely legal to completely illegal. So we think that the, the, the sanctions at the moment are really going to light a fire under moving ahead with uh, putting in place this registry. Uh, we're glad that the government has promised it. We'd just like to see it now move more quickly. And the situation in Ukraine is really making clear why it is needed, why it is long overdue. As as we alluded, long overdue and such. So has the attention on this, these Russian oligarchs, and you know, not only are we sanctioning the country, we're sanctioning the rich, the, the rich bad people that are the oligarchs that have been profiting off the backs of of, of people. Uh, is it that aspect of that that's drawn the attention, drawn our attention to this? That now we're going after people who are there causing bad things, but have money stashed here. Yes, I think it makes concrete uh, the connection between the obscene yeah. wealth that's held by a very few and then where it has come from and the effects that it has and the need to know who owns what and then why do they own that thing. So Canada needs to be an international leader on transforming this system. But in order to be a leader, we need to have in place the, the appropriate systems that we are actually advocating for. So we should follow the lead of the UK, implement a public beneficial ownership registry, and then start pressuring others in the international system to do the same so we can know who is sheltering assets, where and why. Why have we let this get to this point? Who has been benefiting from this? Uh, I mean, it's elites of all nationalities who are the beneficiaries of this. They want anonymity in their ownership for lots of reasons, few of which are legitimate. The main one is simply to uh, reduce their taxes, which some of it may be uh, illegal, some of it is legal, but they want to be hidden from their uh, their asset they, they want their assets to be hidden so then they're not on the hook for their tax responsibilities and then of course that's just the starting point there's all kinds of other activities that are involved in the wealth that they've generated and they want to maintain their anonymity how is canada marketed as a great place to stash your cash it's canada's reputation it's it's perceived a uh, strong rule of law, a, system, uh, a, a country with a robust legal system, with a robust tax system, that combined with the anonymity that a Canadian registered shell company is really the potent combination that these business service providers are selling to their ultra-wealthy clients. Uh, they say Canada is a great place to set up a shell company because then the assets that pass through there, the money that passes through there, it bears the imprint of Canada 
rather than say a known mm. tax haven, which might draw attention and, and raise some questions in other jurisdictions where the money moves to. We've seen how this global pandemic and now this conflict has changed people's priorities, people's perception. Uh, do you think it, we have done the same here? Do you think this you can put this genie back in the bottle? Uh, the, the attention that this has gotten, just this report, the, the timing of it, you know, this report was in the works for quite a while, but I think the urgency is now in in plain view because we can directly connect it to the Russian oligarchs, directly connect it to the sanctions, directly connect it to the conflict in Ukraine. So hopefully more you know, people are going to be contacting their MPs and saying, we need this yesterday. But beyond that, also reaching out to provincial governments, because we need all jurisdictions to sign on in order to make this effective. D.T. Cochran, Ph.D., with us, researcher with the Canadians for tax fairness, talking about oligarchs, uh, leaders, dictators stashing their cash in Canada. D.T., thanks for the time and insight. Fascinating report. Be well. Thank you very much. You too. We certainly know what's going on with uh, Ukraine and the Russian invasion uh, as we enter day 20 well, or through day 22 now. Uh, there's chatter next week of a NATO summit taking place in Brussels. Uh, the prime minister going back, uh, President Biden going to be there as well, as well as European leaders. Um, we certainly know where we are with the no-fly zone. So how much more can we do? What is the objective of this NATO summit next week. Let's bring in Stephen M. Sadman, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, and is with us now. Stephen, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. Thank you, Scott. So we certainly know where we stand here and that we can't cross that NATO border without starting World War III. So what other options do we have? What's the What's the purpose of this meeting? What are the objectives here? Well, I think there's a couple different objectives here. One is to have a show of unity, to show to to Putin and to the world how serious the NATO countries are taking this conflict and to you know demonstrate resolve and so that's the first job the second job is to think about you know not just today tomorrow but the next day so i expect a lot of the news to come out of this to focus more on well is nato going to be based permanently in the eastern part of uh, of of the of europe that uh, in 1997, the NATO and Russia made an agreement called the NATO-Russia Founding Act, which said no permanent bases uh, in Eastern Europe, and it set forth a bunch of different conditions that are largely obsolete. They, they were overcome by events. That event would be Russia's uh, annexation of Crimea, and now even more so the invasion of Russia of, of Ukraine. So. I kind of expect them to make some announcements about future deployments and the future of the missions in Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Poland, and probably Romania and Bulgaria as well. I think that will be uh, a newsmaker. So more of a permanent situation to help what's going on and what could end up being a long-term affair. That's right. I mean, the the Germans had been hesitant for quite some time to to use anything like uh, permanent uh, it was always seen as being temporary because they wanted to keep things open with the Russians. But I think whatever German resistance there was to declaring these kinds of operations longstanding, I, th- I think that's gone away in the past few weeks. So I think this, along with other changes in German foreign policy, will make it easier for NATO to start making longer-term plans, and and that makes sense. 
And that, obviously, many have said, will unite NATO countries. Obviously accurate? I think uh, they have been united, that the threat on the east has become quite real to all of them. So I I think that uh, that you'll see it'll be very straightforward to reach unity with with these countries. Uh, This is not the days of two years ago where uh, Donald Trump is bullying everybody. I think we're going to see a lot of NATO countries, uh, you know, see eye to eye on this. Uh, and it's just that's the way it's going to be. Uh, we certainly know that uh, UK, uh, Ukraine President Zelensky has been uh, appearing at various uh, uh, houses uh, of parliament, whether it's the UK, Canada, uh, the US, Germany, uh, most recently. Uh, he seems to have dropped the idea of a NATO membership. Is, this, is there significance to that? Is that a value on the bargaining table? I think I think uh, for Russia, I think that matters. I think this might be the fig, one of the fig leaves that Putin might need to to be able to declare victory. Um, I think you know before the conflict, uh, it was very hard for for Zelensky to say no. He's going to give this up because it's within the the Ukrainian constitution, and he didn't want to submit to Russian blackmail. But you know, once a war happens and there's a lot of casualties, you, you look for a way out. And I think. The the reality that Ukraine won't be a member of NATO anytime too soon is is something that he can bargain with uh, to to maybe get this war to end. That being said, we've certainly seen the military falter. It's not what it used to be. Uh, many uh, bothers, you know, watching uh, the capture of Crimea, now Ukraine and the invasion there, that they are going to go further. Do they really have the ability to go further, considering they're having such a hard time now? I, I don't think that, that we have to worry too much about Russia invading beyond what what they've done. If they can't get through Ukraine, then it's going to be much harder for them to actually launch a war against NATO or against anybody else. This this is it's not only that their their military is shown to be have real problems in, in planning and in, in strategy and logistics, but that they're exhausting a lot of capability that they simply can't won't have around next month to use against anybody else. So it's going to take a while for them to rearm and reequip and. And develop, you know, dreams of, of expansion. I just, I just don't see that in the cards anytime too soon. Um, you know, even if uh, Russia declares a win of some sort, and my goodness, we can only imagine what that could look like, and, and especially if this escalates. But at the end of the day, no matter what the outcome is, isn't Russian uh, Russia done? I mean, like on the world stage, uh, how do they come back from this? Well, that's a really good question. I do think that Russia's both the invasion itself and how it how it implemented the invasion has really cost uh, cast a lot of doubt on Russian power. They've alienated a lot of uh, a lot of the world. It's definitely created a lot of unity again within NATO. So I'm not going to say that Russia's done, but I don't think Russian threats are going to be as as important. I don't think Russia's going to be as meaningful as a player down the road as it as it was before now. Uh, I think any dreams of Russia being a great power, reclaiming its lost glory, has uh, lost glory has has sort of died on uh, along with that convoy, uh, which is I think still stuck somewhere. Uh, is Putin's greatest obstacle or even enemy at this point? Could it be his own people as they realize what the heck's been going on here? How much they've had the the wool pulled over their eyes, and 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 now they want some sort of uh, some sort of change. I think that the Russian people uh, have limited ability to influence Putin because he, he has uh, an impressive repressive apparatus. I'd say that yeah. fast. And as a result, 
I mean, it, it matters that their opposition matters. Uh, that you know, if the Arnold Schwarzenegger speech today gets played throughout Russia, that will matter. Um, I think he'll have a harder time exerting power, uh, but I, 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 their ability to remove him is, is limited. On the other hand, he's going to have to spend more time repressing the Russian people than on doing other things. So there's a real opportunity cost with this war. It's, it's going to make it hard to do other things now. It seems uh, today, uh, or we're hearing today, that he is chastising those in Russia that aren't supporting him. So is that a sign that, that this is starting to crack? I, I, I think it is a sign that he's starting to crack. I, I, yeah. I can't go too far with that. But it's it's definitely showing the wear and tear that there's much more opposition to this than he expected, just like he expected a lot less opposition in Ukraine to this. So he's been surprised, and, and with surprise comes frustration, anger, and we shouldn't be surprised to see that. But I, I, I don't want to overestimate the possibility that, that he'll get removed. Now, it's possible uh, that that forces nearby him may decide to remove him, but there's nothing automatic about it. Uh, and if it happens, it might be quite costly indeed. Stephen Sademan with us, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network, talking about meetings uh, summit next week uh, in Brussels with all of the NATO leaders, or, or with NATO leaders, rather. Stephen, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. Maybe he can remember the last time we celebrated St. Paddy's Day. Uh, the show is on right after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Uh, Scott, I hope you're doing well on this St. Paddy's Day. I am. I'm always confused by that group, though. Shouldn't Van Morrison be Dutch? No, <laughs> no he's Irish. I know, but it's, you know... <laughs> There's not a lot of van names in Ireland, I didn't think. But anyway. Yeah, you know. uh, I never thought of that. Uh, yeah, we'll have to, you know what, um, get that family tree company. Let's uh, let's start looking up on what is <laughs> Get it called? Will on it. Get Will working yeah, that, on it. That's right. We'll work on that. See if it, Well, yes, it, it turns out that his grandparents were actually Dutch. Uh, no. All right. So uh, do you celebrate St. Patty's Day? Did we do this? I can't even remember if we did. Did we play St. Patty's Day last year or we... Lockdown. I, you know, I I, I, I can't remember. Memories, I judge my memories is by all the stories of universities and uh, you know the uh, police involvement at large gatherings, and I don't remember one in the last year or two, so probably not. That's a very good point. Uh, do you think people are feeling a little festive today uh, because you know we are seeing protocol drop? Do you think we're going to see more people uh, getting out and enjoying the green today? It probably, um, especially, I mean, it's a beautiful day out there, so why not yeah. as well, just to get out outside. But, uh, Scott, I think we uh, we are hearing now that, you know, travel companies are seeing massive numbers of people reaching out and trying to book trips. And I think everybody is now just ready to do something, yeah. whether it's traveling or just getting out or going to a movie. I, I just think that you know, it was it was fun at the beginning in a weird kind of way. It was kind of, you know, not fun, but it was it was unique to be. I know exactly with- what you're saying. It was it was kind of a challenge at the beginning. I joke around and saying, you know, the, the first couple of weeks we thought we could eat and drink our way out of this, and that's not that and that wasn't a good idea. No, um, but it was. We, we thought, okay, I don't have to leave home, and I can live in my pajamas, yeah. and I can, you know, <laughs> blah blah blah. And and there was, you know, and part of that honestly still has some appeal. <laughs> But yes. I, I think we are, 
at the point now where we do remember that, you know what, human beings um, are built to be social creatures, and uh, we do want to see other humans. And what do you... Yeah. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Uh, obviously, we're seeing the masking uh, policies uh, be relaxed as of uh, Monday, March 21st. Uh, BC's doing the same thing. They actually dropped their masking mandate like uh, it will be 10 days before uh, Ontario does. Uh, we're certainly seeing uh, the Toronto and the Hamilton School Board question uh, this uh, initially, you know, wanting to keep masking till the 15th of April. Obviously, that's been bumped back a little bit. What are your thoughts? on school boards extending beyond you know i look i i think that you get an awful lot of people who are in the public square who aren't really sure what to do and i mean how many times do we have school boards or schools not just here in hamilton but anywhere who put in rules that we look at you know for for how things you're allowed to do or not allowed to do because of the threat of litigation as well yeah. And well, I think there'll be some litigation. I think there'll be some litigation with this as people show up and say, well, the law says I don't have to wear a mask today. Well, there's Uh, litigation that could go anywhere. But I mean, the litigation I'm talking about is how many rules do we now have in school? Because a parent decided that something their kid got hurt doing something and sued the school. And therefore, now we've got a rule that says you can't do that. And I think that maybe maybe there's a thought on some of the school boards, not just here, but around saying, you know, if we bring the kids back to school and somebody gets sick, what happens? Better to just always go to the end, farthest distance of caution, which is the reason why, you know, we've had schools that will take down the basketball hoops on the schoolyard. The I know. I don't get me started so on that. Yeah. But it's like we, we, we are terrified. And look, that's not entirely the school board's fault. The, no. the school board is not suing themselves. It's the parents and the public yeah. that is doing no. this. So then when we turn around after we've filed these lawsuits, when we turn around and then say, well, why do you not let us do anything? Don't scream probably at the school board. No, Please that's true. neighbor who filed yeah. the lawsuit. No, it's very true. My kid was out playing basketball on the school property near us, and a security guard came around and kicked them off. And it's like, well, and it's sort of a side part of the school. Because if he fell and broke his arm... Some parent, maybe not you, but some parent would then say, well, look, they created an unsafe environment where the nets were up and it lured the kids to well, come and play and there was a bump in the asphalt and he fell and blah, blah, well, blah. What it is is exactly what you said. The, the side of the school that it is, there's a wall there, and then there's a, a row of houses behind it. So if the kids are constantly in this little corridor bouncing basketballs, it drives the, those neighbors nuts. And that's why the kids aren't playing basketball. It's it's unbelievable. And like you said, you know, don't blame the security guard. Don't blame the school. You know, it's the parents that, same thing, your dog's off a leash. The next thing you know, the dog police are coming. It's like, you're kidding me, really? Anyway. Well, we had a, we, on our street, we used to, when the kids were a little younger, had a basketball net that was at the end of our driveway. Yeah. And, um, you know, we try to encourage activities. Yeah. And one time, it only happened once, and then it never went, I never did anything and nothing ever happened, but someone came and said, your net is actually extending over onto the street. It was over yeah. by about three inches. The rim, yeah. the front of the rim was about yeah. three inches and someone came and said, you have to do something about that. And I just ignored it. And, of course, nothing ever happened. But who? Like, who Who does that? Why do you do that? How cranky a human do you have to be <laughs> to make that phone call? But the same thing. Same thing with the school. And I don't know if this is the kind of reason why school boards are so yeah. careful about masks because they're scared someone's going to sue them. But you know what? 
they probably have reason to be because if someone were to get COVID, a student or a teacher or someone else, I bet someone would file a lawsuit. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up right after the 6 o'clock news, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.